4: Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home, so you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, if you listened to episode 91 of Newt's World, you heard my first interview with Gerard Robinson and our discussion about race in America. Since that episode aired, we've received a lot of responses from listeners who wanted to hear more about race in America. And where do we go from here? So I invited Gerard Robinson to join me again for another candid conversation. He is a longtime friend and someone I admire. I'm pleased to welcome back my guest, Gerard Robinson, the Vice President for Education at the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation in Charlottesville, Virginia. He previously served as Commissioner of Education for the state of Florida and as Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Gerard, I really want to thank you for sharing with us something I know you've thought a great deal about and spent your lifetime working on, and that is how do we find solutions to the question of race in America? And I know that you're a naturally positive person and so I'd be very curious looking at the current polarization and the current difficulties and the violence on the street and the very, very large demonstrations. As you look forward for the next 10 or 15 years, how do you see America being true to itself and working its way through all this?
5: There are two ways. One is to go back and look at our ideas across space and time. And then the second is to look at moments in history where we've used those ideas for the right cause and when we did not live up to them. One of the reasons I remain positive in 2020 is because I understand as a Black man in America that with the challenges I have because of race, that I live a better life than my mother and father did, who were also Black. And they lived an economically more secure life than their parents. And so from the end of the Civil War to the present, there's been a lot of progress. And I think we have to focus on the progress that we've made. What the killing of George Floyd has done is it's given us an opportunity to look at some of our warts and we have a number of them. I think it was Dr. Connelly Rice who recently in an interview referred to the issue of race as America's birth defect. Others have called it a sin on our democracy, whatever term you use, we know that it's real, but we have examples of how far we've come. So I think that we've got to take a look at that. At the same time, when we are having conversations about taking down statues and that's a legitimate conversation to have, what do you replace them with? So if we want to take down statues of George Washington, yes, he was a slave owner. Yes, he was a white male who benefited from skin privilege, but he was also someone who helped make it possible for us to sit in air conditioned rooms, in homes that are rented or paid for, with university degrees that taxpayers help to support, pontificating about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, how did he make this possible? Can we focus on that and the Constitution itself? So I think we have to look at the ideas, but also look at the progress.
4: To what extent is there a split, if you will, between those who believe that if we continue to make progress in the broad sense of economically, et cetera, that ultimately, as life gets better, racial tensions will naturally decline, and those who believe that unless you focus directly and explicitly on racial tensions, that it doesn't matter how much progress you're making on jobs or prosperity... Is that an appropriate dichotomy? And if it is, where do you come down? it? It's a useful dichotomy.
5: I don't know if it's appropriate because I don't buy into the idea that racial tensions will ever go away. I think there's just certain built-in dynamics that we play out in what I call skin is my kin philosophy, where we're going to make allegiance with, with people who have the same phenotype than not. So that's just one point. But what I do believe is that you're going to find maybe not less tension, but you can shift that tension towards something that's more productive by focusing on exactly what we have in common. Now, you think about the moment we're at. There are families who are concerned about the safety of their children, black and white, Hispanic, Native American, other. Let's focus on the issue of safety. We all want to make sure our kids have a great education. Let's focus on that. We want to make sure people aren't brutalized. And there are more people who are white who've been shot and killed by police from 2015 to the present than black. So I would like to find areas where we find common interest, not for the sake of minimizing racial tension. I think that's going to be around for a whole different set of reasons, independent of jobs, education or even religion.
4: Do you expect it to be? No matter how successful we are at integrating economically, that there will remain a residual degree to which we have not integrated racially.
5: I would say you don't even have to look for that racially. Look for that within the white race itself. So in the U.S., look at the number of whites who have been involved in generational poverty. The grandparents, 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 just generational poverty across the line. And they're white. If we take a look at the Europeans who traveled to the United States from Southern and Eastern Europe, their arrival on the Atlantic shore of the U.S. was tough. The Italians were often called the N-words of the white race. You had signs that talked about Irish were not allowed. So even within the white race, excluding people of color, there hasn't been equity. You still have very interesting dynamics. Race makes it easy to compare black and white because you don't have to talk about class. But once you take the black dynamic out of it and you're looking at an intra-white dynamic, now you're talking about class. And as much as we want to believe we're a class of society, we've never been a class of society. So the tensions that you see even amongst whites within the Democratic Party and Republican Party are tensions that have been there for a long time and they existed before the idea of bringing in race. So I think some of this is just a part of who we are in terms of tension and ideas.
4: To what extent are Asian Americans, Latinos, and African Americans really can't be lumped together as people of color because their experiences and their cultures are so dramatically different?
5: You know, that's correct. I use the term black. Some use African American and that's fine. 10% of the people we call black in the United States are in fact immigrants a number of them from West Africa, from Haiti, from the Caribbean, and from South America. When we talk about Asians, we lump Asians in one big group. Often when we say Asian, we don't think about Indian. I mean technically they're Asian. And even when we talk about the model minority, maybe it's Chinese and Japanese. What about Vietnamese? What about Hmong? What about Thai? And so within every group, you've got the gradations of class, religion within the Hispanic community. Think about it. When we say race, we think black. When we say ethnicity, we think Hispanic or non-white. When we say Latino, that's more brown-skinned people of Hispanic areas than not. So all of us can't be lumped into the same group. That's why we've got to find an American agenda that we can all link to as we think about moving forward.
4: Let me break it into maybe three different zones personal, corporate, and government. At a personal level, we have a lot of people who are sincere, but they may never have had much relationship with African-Americans. So they'd like to be helpful, but they don't actually have a clue how to start. What would you say to them?
5: I would say take a look at what other whites have done for over 100 years who are in the same situation. Some of them have invested in nonprofit organizations they think, advance their cause. So I think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC, as it's known. You had an NAACP at the time. You also had an Urban League at the time. You had other organizations. But when people looked across the board, they said, I'm going to invest in SCLC because I like what King is saying, and he's got Christian in the word. So that's one thing people can do. Another thing they can do is to purchase books written by and about African Americans across space and time. This is 2020. A hundred years ago, we were in part of what America calls the Harlem Renaissance, a flourishing of Black literature, of Black arts. A number of those scholars had affiliations with my alma mater, Howard University, but a lot of them were also in New York and across the country. I would say How far have we come or not in 100 years as it relates to Black intellectual tradition from 1920s to today? The third thing, and one that's gone on even before 100 years, is faith-based conversations across the line. King also talked about Sunday being one of the most segregated points in America, because we go to different churches, yet many of us within the Christian faith Christian being Catholic and Protestant or worshiping and worshiping, saying God Savior just in different places. I think the faith based community has a tremendous opportunity to have virtually conversations between white churches and black churches, black pastors and others. So I think technology opens up a wonderful opportunity for us to reach out.
4: If you were giving advice to a 16 to 19 year old young black male, How much would you tell them to focus on learning how to rise in the world as it is? And how much would you tell them to focus on trying to change the world as it is?
5: I would focus on telling them to do some important things. Number one, become or remain literate. And that's more than learning how to read a book or listen to a podcast. Literacy has a lot more to do with your ability to comprehend texts and passages, to apply what you learned across different genres, and it also means to look at literacy as a way of liberating yourself emotionally, economically, spiritually. So I would say focus on that. Number two, I would say read books by men who look like you to see how they dealt with challenges when they were in their teens or they were young adults. In terms of changing the world, I think once you change yourself, you can decide to get involved in a movement to change things. I think that's one thing we have with Black Lives Matter. But some says, well, while I may not march or invest, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach. So I would tell them, find a craft to change the world and walk that lane because there are many ways you can be involved. But I would definitely say find role models alive and dead where you can learn lessons.
4: What are some of the books you have found most helpful, and you would recommend to a younger African American to read? One of the first
5: books I read in my teens was a book by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, second African American to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard, behind W.E.B. Du Bois. He wrote a book called The Miseducation of the Negro, and it's not a very long read, but it's a book that pretty much, coming from an intellectual. Now, just think about it. When he wrote this book in the early part of the 20th century, he was one of the few Americans, independent of race, who had a Ph.D. And he pretty much walks you through a simple yet scientific way of looking at being black in America or at that time, uh, Negro in America. And what did it mean? What were the traps? What are some of the opportunities? So that book, when I talk to black professionals across the board, And we name books that influenced our lives. That's definitely one. Because I think even white people, Hispanic, Native Americans, and others who are finding themselves in the position of being a Negro, in this sense of wondering, where do you fit in society of rapid change? They could benefit as well. I would say pick up Born to Rebel by Benjamin E. Mays, who used to be the president of Morehouse College. Here's a man who grew up in South Carolina, saw one of his parents brutalized by the Klan, later earns a Ph.D., becomes a college president, and helped change the world through producing a generation who worked in military, government, and others. Just seeing his life and his change and leaving South Carolina to go to Bates College in Maine, I think is an important book. This is one that people would find somewhat interesting because I am a free market guy. I would pick up the book, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America by Manny Marable. And I would pick up that book because while I'm a free market guy, I support our capitalist system. It's worth knowing as black people what role capitalism has played in the United States in creating the type of environment that we have today where we're talking about, in fact, do black lives matter? There are more books, but those are three that come to mind.
4: You mentioned earlier about the Harlem Renaissance, but there was a period in Memphis, in Tulsa, and I think Raleigh, where there was a very substantial black middle class. And there were places where there were hotels and there were restaurants and there were stores. Many of them were actually destroyed by things like urban renewal or literally building highways directly through them. I don't know who has written an economic history of the post-slavery period it's really frustrating because you see people beginning to rise and systems beginning to work and then they get run over it's
5: correct time and time again and that story is passed from one generation to the next there's a book the history of black business in the united states and it's a really good story because it really just goes through the role that Blacks have played in the free market system, either as entrepreneurs or starting corporations and moving forward. That's one I would definitely take a look at. We recently had conversations about Tulsa, Oklahoma and the Black Wall Street and what happened, literally a bombing of that city and what happened there. Reginald Lewis, he published a book called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? I had a chance to meet his wife and daughter at a book event at Harvard Law School inside of a center that bears his name when he talked about his rise from going to Virginia State University to Harvard Law School and opening up a billion dollar company. But the frustration about government impediments, about labor contracts that basically wrote out non-white men and women, regardless of race, into jobs and examples of redlining is just horrible.
4: I have a very good friend who is half black and half white. She's a woman, one of the smartest art historians I know. And she's lived in Italy for, I think, about 35 years. And she told me the other week, we were just chatting about the differences, and she said, to the best of her memory, no one in Italy has ever noticed what her racial background is. They didn't know whether she was North African or whether she was Sicilian or whatever, and it didn't matter. It wasn't one of the ways they kept score. She said she's always felt comfortable, and only in the last couple of years, as race has become a more public issue in America, has she realized how really different Italy is from the United States in that kind of experience. And I thought it was kind of fascinating. To some degree, the very nature of America heightens an awareness that you don't get in a place like Italy.
5: There's truth to that 2020, but also historically, you listen to stories, video archived or reading articles or books written by black veterans of World War I and World War II, who spent time in Germany, France, different parts of Europe. And they saw both sides. Uh, some of them told stories of them walking through the streets And people turn it around to see whether or not they had a tail. Because the white soldiers said, you know, these guys are really monkeys. And if you see them walking, look close up, you'll see a tail. So that was one side. But you also had white business owners inviting them to sit and dine with other whites at the same table that in the United States, there's just no way they would have an opportunity to eat in an integrated environment. A number of them ended up marrying European women. A number of them came back to the United States. We know this to be true. From experiences of veterans. We know the same thing about American athletes. Some of the black athletes who participate in international amateur sports who go, let's say, throughout Europe have had a very different interaction. Not saying it's perfect. They've, you know, they may call the N-word. There's still challenges. But the nuance of race in America is definitely different than the nuance of race in Europe, in part because how race became so much a part of our unspoken truth in the United States, where in Europe, they also are older than we are and have had a longer history with Africa than us. But you still have some African-Americans who live in Europe, in fact, in Paris, one in particular who has a tour that she sponsors. If you wanna get a tour about black Paris, and it's about the role of black people in French society before colonialism and afterwards. There's some truth to that and I see that continuing for quite some time.
4: I wonder to what extent when you think in terms of the great sweeps of history and how change occurs, it's a little hard to realize how recently legal segregation was real and enforced often, if necessary, by killing people. And we're only talking about a generation ago. And in that sense, there's a long process of change underway. I do think there was a period when we were starting to move, not necessarily towards being colorblind, but towards King's formula, the content of your character being more important than the color of your skin. Think of, obviously, when you think of real national leaders, on my side, people like a Condi Rice or a Colin Powell had huge impact. And I think very few people thought of them first racially. I think they thought of them as sort of unique human beings.
5: So you've lived through segregation in Georgia Pre-1994, post-1994, in Atlanta when Benjamin Mays is on the school board, the integration of its schools had challenges, but nothing like we saw in Boston in the 1970s, in part because Atlanta had, at least amongst many themes, a city too busy to hate. And so you had people like John Lewis, you had others who said, we're going to make this work. But just think about the time period when, for example, the current conversation right now about reparations, many of those who are against it said slavery was over 100 years ago. There are no existing slaves. The problem with linking reparations solely to slavery overlooks the fact that after slavery, you had a long history of systematic discrimination. You had from 1877 moving forward after Reconstruction, you had black coats. That stopped many African-Americans from not only owning businesses, but parlaying, in fact, who they could marry. Get into the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. I'm currently in Charlottesville, Virginia. Just think about women not coming into UVA into the 1970s, last school to really make a big push on that. So discrimination as we know it is bigger than slavery. You had black codes, you had Jim Crow, who in many ways had a lasting longer impact on people free it's not as far back as we think including my mother we would drive from los angeles to lake charles louisiana to see my relatives and i remember her coming back to the car crying on a number of occasions and i said what's wrong they said they don't have any rooms and i said but the sign says vacancy this happened for years in the 70s it's because they weren't going to rent a room black person. and one time she said watch this we sat in the car Two other cars pulled up over about an hour and a half period, both white and they both got rooms. And I went, oh, now I see. Now, that was a kid, you know, I wasn't even 10 years old. That was in the 70s.
6: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick
3: Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I was born in Harrisburg, and I grew up in an integrated U.S. Army. I remember first getting to Georgia in 1960, which was the first time I saw a white only and colored sign for bathrooms or water fountains or whatever. But in the late 60s, I was a graduate student at Tulane, which in New Orleans had a very interesting and very complicated Mm -hmm. background, really growing out of the fact that when New Orleans was really prosperous, you'd have one street that had all the wealthy, basically white people. And right behind them, you'd have the streets that the servants lived on. And -hmm. so you had these communities that were totally innovative. And I had a woman tell me, that when her son was bleeding, and this now is the late 60s, she had to take him to the back door of the doctor's office because the doctor wanted to treat him, but he couldn't treat him if he came in the front. I think it's very hard for white Americans to fully appreciate how personal and how humiliating it was. And I think part of that's also the sense of helplessness. People forget that Literally as late as the mid-60s, as we saw with the famous pictures of the police dogs in Birmingham, you had the full power of the government at the state level in a number of southern states that was enforcing this behavior, and you had the power of the mob that was prepared to lynch people in a way that, again, I think is totally outside the comprehension of most white Americans, but is actually, I think, an integral part of the black experience and is so recent that it's part of what fits into the whole sense about the police, because it's whatever the current situation is, it is reflected against several generations of repression.
5: And here's an example of why we've got to look at oppression outside of just the experience of blacks in America, definitely unique because of chattel slavery. But when you think about one of the early mass lynchings in the United States, yes, African-American men in particular, more so than others, you mentioned New Orleans. That's home to one of the early mass lynchings in American history. And those were of Italians. Go back and read the newspaper articles and the stories about why that happened. How you have that many people, a large mob hanging the Italians and why the Italians. You go to New York, you go to Boston. Here the stories of people of Irish descent, some of them even having conversations in the 80s about how they still felt themselves, yeah, more empowered, but still being treated differently. You have John F. Kennedy from a very wealthy family, very well educated. He's going to run for president as a senator. And yet his Irishness and his Catholicness within the white establishment is in question. And so I think that whites could benefit a great deal by walking through their own historical lineages and seeing the oppression and itself play out across the board. Because when you even look at vagrancy laws, surely they had a major impact on the ability of Black people to travel. But vagrancy laws had a lot to do with landless whites and what that meant as a takeover they brought from them with Europe and the poor laws. We often want to get into what I call the victim Olympics, to see who was victimized more than others and everyone's got a right to identify it and hold the flag. I just think there's an aspect of victimization within different groups we can learn from across the plate and say, well, now that we know this, let's create an agenda for the future.
4: Now I'm gonna put you on the spot because I think this is part of what people who really enjoyed learning about you in our first conversation and came back and asked us, but if you could wave a magic wand, what would your idealized agenda for the future be?
5: no agenda in america is going to take place without economic fulfillment i'd want to put together a number of small commissions that are local based for people to have conversations about how can we make smart cities smart counties smart rural areas by smart i mean we've got to have the intellectual infrastructure we've got to have the capital we've got to have the technology for people to wanna live in that place and stay in that place. But that's gonna require local people getting together to say, how do we create economic security? It's gonna be everything from someone, let's say from the left saying a minimum livable wage, which let's say it's $15 to someone saying, well, why don't we have a social entrepreneurship fund to invest in businesses and everything in between and accept the fact that compromise will be a part of the conversation and accept the fact that we're just not going to agree on everything. But I would start that at the local level. So that's an economic standpoint. From a faith standpoint, we've got a lot of traditions, including the fact that a Pew study a few years ago identified that there are more people today who identify with Wicca than who are members of the Presbyterian church. And so to realize that there is a growing number of people who have a faith tradition that may be very different, radically different than, let's say, the one of our founding generation, but who nonetheless are part of our citizenry, and they believe that their faith matters. And so I think we need to have interfaith dialogue. If we believe in within the Catholic and the Protestant perspective, if we believe in Jesus and the power of the church, how do we make that happen? So I think there's a faith and a belief perspective. Third thing We've gotta have a strong focus on education. And for me, education simply isn't a school building. It's a lifelong learning process. How do we invest in programs that work? But nothing that I said is new, but I just don't think that we often implement what we say we wanna do. But those are just a few things that come to mind.
4: I have been fascinated with the Museum of African American History, and you cannot go there without having a much richer and a much deeper sense of the length and the importance of the African-American experience in American history. I think it's overall a remarkable addition to the Smithsonian. And I recommend it to anybody who's listening to the podcast. If you go to Washington, try to make some extra time. And I would spend at least three or four hours because they have tremendous exhibits. And you'll just find yourself learning a lot. It's a remarkable place.
5: That museum has had a tremendous impact on people of all colors and races who have been there. And they come back with just wonderful stories. And what we say is we say the African-American experience. What they're really looking at is the African-American investment into American civilization. I think about the fact that in 1773, when the British Parliament had enacted the Tea Act, and American colonists, of course, replied by staging a Boston Tea Party, While that was taking place, you had free and enslaved Africans in Massachusetts who were submitting to the state legislature petitions for their own freedom. 1777, when Vermont breaks away from New York for its own independence, you had Prince Hall, who was then a slave, and several other African-Americans who were petitioning the legislature. 1777, a month before the delegates arrived to Philadelphia to talk about the Constitution, you had Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, men of faith who created the Free African Society to deal with economic well-being of children and families, education. These actually served as examples for non-Black congregations to do the same thing. And so when I talk about African or Black history in the United States, for me, isn't it an experience, it's about the Black investment And that investment we've all benefited
4: from. That's great. That's a very, very useful and powerful distinction. And I appreciate you sharing it with us. Thank you so much for taking your time. And I think people will find this a very stimulating and very thoughtful opportunity to get to know you even better.
5: Glad to be a part of the conversation.
4: And now I'll answer your questions. Robert H. from Illinois writes, How does President Trump get his message to the mass population, especially independents, African Americans, and Hispanics, right now, since the leftist media, Black Lives Matter, and the virus are setting the tone? And he goes on to say, and I appreciate your saying this, thank you for the tireless work to preserve this great country. Look, I think we learned from Ronald Reagan. The way you get past all of the noise on the left is steady, consistent, work. Presidents have enormous reach. When the president this week held a remarkable briefing with the attorney general, with the head of Homeland Security, with a number of families who had had loved ones killed, and he outlined what he was doing and why he was doing it, that penetrated, period. And if he stays on it and follows up on it, he will get his message across. But it does require persistence. It's also a fact, a sort of amazing fact, that his total reach on social media just about evens out with all of the major news media combined. He's now been fighting them since 2015. He's gotten about 93% negative coverage in the elite media. And the result's been that he's fought them to, I think, basically to a tie because of the sheer reach of what he's saying. And because, frankly, most of what he's doing, the average American cares about. I mean, The average American listens to Biden indirectly promising to take money away from the police. He doesn't say defund because he knows that's politically dead. But he says, oh, we'll divert money, which, of course, is defunding. Trump comes back and says, no, the police need our help. And by the way, here's the murder rate in New York, here's the killing rate in Chicago, etc. And as a result, about 75 percent of the country does not want to defund the police because they're looking every day at this murder rate and this shooting rate thinking this is crazy. So I do think it can work. Thank you to my guest, Gerard Robinson. You can read more about race in America and where we go from here on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Media. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penner. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com questions. I'll answer them in future episodes. If you've been enjoying NewsWorld, World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, There has been a national outcry by left-wing activists to defund the police in the wake of George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis in May. However, shootings are now on the rise in Chicago, New York, and other major cities. What will it take to keep our city safe? My guest is Bill Bratton, the man who created safety for New York City in the 1990s. This Sunday is our 100th episode of Newt's World, and I want to thank you for listening. For emailing me your questions, and for your great interest in the issues we all face as a country. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States,